Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 25. We were on that page for our call to worship. Looked at the one before. Uh, If you're like me and you ever wake up and try to pray and the words aren't quite flowing, I commend this psalm as a, a good place to start. It's certainly been that for me for many years, so I thought it'd be good to preach to you. This is the word of the Lord, of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely. And afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is God's word. Let's ask his blessing together. Father, we take great comfort in the fact that as life's trials come upon us, that we're not on our own. Lord Jesus, you told us that in this life we will have trials, but take heart for you have overcome the world. Not only that, but you give us your spirit to be with us. And we pray that your spirit now would give illumination For you are a teacher and we need to be taught by you, so we pray that you would do that now in your word. Give us insight, open our hearts that we might receive your word with gladness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How do you pray when you're overwhelmed? If life is pretty smooth sailing right now, if the waters are relatively calm, think back. Think back to a time in your life in a new city, or maybe swamped with work or a hectic end to the semester. And ask yourself, what did I ask from God in that time? What do I want from God when I'm overwhelmed? Our natural response is to ask God for a divine band-aid. Lord, I'm stressed. Make me less stressed. 
And I want to ask the question, is that a good way to pray? Is that the best way to pray? It's not bad and it's not wrong, wrong to want our problems to end. It's not a bad thing to ask for comfort in trials. God's long-term plan for you, if you're his, is not misery. No, it's blessing. Enjoy and fellowship with himself and his people, but what about now? The beautiful thing, what I love about the Psalms is that they give us words to say when we're in hard times. And they can do that because many of them came from times of real hardship, times of real difficulty, times when rebellious sons were trying to kill their fathers and jealous fathers-in-law were trying to kill their sons-in-law, when entire nations were away from home in exile and being mocked. The Psalms weren't born out of thin air. Now, we don't know the details about the one before us, Psalm 25, but clearly it was born out of trial and great stress. Look at the language David uses to describe his situation. He's in danger of being put to shame. He's in danger of being put to shame at the hands of his enemies. He's lonely. He's afflicted. He has great troubles in his heart. He's in great distress. There's no doubt this was an excruciating time for David, but notice right off the bat that the troubles David's facing don't take center stage. They're there, but they don't dominate. If I had to give this sermon a title, I might have called it Priorities for Prayer. When life overwhelms you and when trials overtake you, what would God have you ask of him? What are God's priorities for your prayers when life overwhelms? Now, David does begin in verse 1 through 3 with an honest cry for help. He begins by turning to the Lord, and he asks God not to put him to shame. The king of Israel is not too proud to beg. He's not hesitant to voice his concerns to God. He has enemies, and he's concerned that they will gain the upper hand. But as soon as David cries to God, look at where he turns. He reminds himself of truth. Verse 3, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Of course, David's thinking of himself. He's waiting for God and he knows, he's confident that God will answer and that's an expression of trust. It's trust in God's character. Trust in God's justice. Now, David's circumstances don't indicate that everything's going to work out in the end. David didn't analyze the situation and deduce that he would come out on top. His hope was in the fact that he knew God and he knew God would be dependable and continue to be dependable and that God would deliver his people. And notice in verse 4 we see a turn, a change in perspective. Remember what I said earlier, the psalm is born out of struggles and yet the struggles aren't the main focus. And so David shifts his focus and where does he shift it? Verse 4, he prays that God would teach him, that God would show him his ways. David realizes that his greatest need is not to get out of trouble. His greatest need is to be holy. And is it true that our tendency in life is to assume that our greatest need is to get to the other side of this next mountain that we have to climb? That it's on the other side of a hectic time and work? Or it'll come as soon as I can find a new job or once strife in my family gets resolved? And God is telling us that no, our greatest need is to be taught by him. Our greatest need is to know God's ways to know his paths and his teaching. And once David pleads for God's teaching, we see another turn. 
And that's a turn towards mercy in verse 6 and 7. As soon as David meditates on his need for God to teach him, through his commandments, through his ways, he realizes his need for mercy. And isn't that appropriate? As soon as we ask God for help, as soon as we ask God for growth and change, we see how far we fall short. We see how badly we still need his mercy. Maybe you can identify with David's cry in verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth. I think the devil is so devious and so good at just dragging us back into the past, isn't he? That time we were young, we made that decision we shouldn't have, or we said that thing we wish we could take back to someone we loved, and the memory keeps repeating and starts and stops, and it can't stop. And we wonder, is the same happening with God? Is he replaying our sins of the past as well? And is the good news is that God answered David's cry in verse 7 with a loud yes. You remember the, problem, the promise, rather, in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Good news, friends, if you're in Christ, if you belong to him, God has no more anger for you. God does not dwell on your sins as you might sometimes. Why? Because they were put on Christ. And God has moved on from them, from your sins. God has no more condemnation for you. And David was assured of this. David didn't know the manner. David didn't know the details of how he would really achieve deliverance. He didn't know the details of the cross, but he knew the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's where he found hope. And that hope leads to another turn. It's our third turn in verses 8. Verses 8 and on. And that's a meditation on God's character. And I love the contrast that David makes in verse 8. God is good and upright. He's perfect, just, and righteous. And because of all those things, he takes us under his wing. Does that strike you? I don't know about you, but... My hope is often in God's patience and his mercy and his righteousness and his justice kind of concern me a little bit. (laughs) But the logic is that God's righteousness is his motive. God's holiness is his motive to condescend to us. Think of what Jesus said in Luke 5. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And the question is, are we willing to still fit the bill? Are we willing to admit that even if we've been Christians for five years, ten years, fifty years... We still need his instruction, that we're still sinners, that we still fall short. Verse 9 gives us a great motivator to drop the pretenses. It's the humble that God heeds. And what does it mean to be humble? Humility is not uh, making sure that everyone knows how, how much of a hot mess you are. That's not humility. That's false humility. Humility is honesty. It's being honest about yourself, and it is being honest about your weakness about your need, about your struggles, and, but it's also honesty about your strengths. But you give God the credit for that, and you give him the glory. It's the humble that God loves to teach. It's those who listen to him. Do you come to God's word realizing that you still need teaching? Do you realize that you still need God to change you? Are you free to admit how far you have to go because before you're refined of all your sin and your imperfection? If you do, then take comfort because God will teach you. He will lead you in what is right. He will teach you his way. David reminds himself again of the ideal to strive for in verse 10. It's God's paths, God's ways over those who keep his covenant, for those who listen to him and obey him. And again, he's back to a conviction of guilt in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my sin, for it is great. 
Jonathan Edwards, a long time ago, I was reading a sermon of his, and he pointed out that the motive God, uh, rather, the motive David presents to God is his guilt. That's the motive for his prayer. It's the greatness of his guilt. In other words, David isn't trying to minimize his sin before God. He's not making excuses. There are no extenuating circumstances that David tries to use to win God's favor. He presents his need for cleansing honestly. He doesn't try to package his guilt in a way that he thinks will be agreeable to God. And why can he do that? Why can David be honest about the greatness of his guilt? Well, he's confident, and we can be confident that we're appealing to God for mercy because of God's own name. Because of Christ's own name. It's not our own track record that we're relying on. When we seek God's forgiveness, it's for the sake of Jesus' name. Have you ever thought about that great assurance of pardon in 1 John 1? What does it say? Does it say if we forgive our, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive? Is that what it says? No, it says God is faithful and just. If you didn't know that was in the Bible, you might not think that that quite checks out. Because I thought the point of forgiveness was that it's free and that you didn't deserve it. And it's not owed. But why can John tell us that God is just to forgive? Because Jesus has earned it for us. Do you realize that if you are a Christian and if you've sinned, you have a right to God's forgiveness? Does that sound too bold for you? Does that sound a bit presumptuous? Well, that's what it means to be in Christ. It means his perfection is yours. It means his righteousness is your clothing. It means that if you're burdened by sins of your youth or sins of yesterday, there's no better place for you to be than before God's throne asking for pardon for the sake of Jesus' name. David turns in verses 12 through 14 to paint a picture of the man who fears the Lord. It's the man who's just turned for pardon in verse 11. And we see again a great hope of instruction for guidance. The great thing about the gospel is God doesn't just pardon you. He doesn't just forgive you. He also changes you. He cleanses you. And it's because of God's continued cleansing and instruction that we can have peace. Verse 13 says our souls will abide in well-being. Our offspring inherit the land. These are great promises that we can rest on, but sometimes we don't always see them fulfilled in this life. Sometimes we wait for the life to come. The saints don't always get a fair shake in this life, even when they've sought to please God. And maybe you've experienced that yourself. Maybe there was a, a time or a conflict you were in where you really tried to be honest and you really sought to please the Lord and it didn't work out for you. You sought to be charitable or fair, but it didn't go your way. Good news, brothers and sisters, is your real inheritance is yet to come. Your soul's well-being has yet to be fully realized. In the meantime, look to verse 14. What a great promise. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. If you're reading the SV, you might want to take a look, look at the footnote uh, for a, maybe a more literal translation. It says the secret counsel. Friendship works because what David's communicating is a God takes us into a place of intimacy, where God is intimate, where he's totally open, full communication, complete transparency. And it's astounding because God is the one being who's revealing himself here. God is the one bringing us into his counsel. And as I've read this verse, I think about uh, a scene in Genesis 18 where God is about to talk with Abraham about Sodom and what's coming. And he says, and it's a line you might glaze over in your quiet time, but God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And I'm struck by those words because Abraham spent a lot of time in his life worshiping the moon. And if you meet someone worshiping the moon at Hearst Teeter, don't trust them. (laughs) And yet God took Abram into his counsel. If you ever sat on your backyard in the summer and enjoyed some sweet tea after a long day and you see an ant walking by, and have you ever said to yourself, I think I'm just going to tell this ant all about myself. And I'm going to talk to him about my hopes and dreams and my aspirations. And No, that's absurd, but that's what God has done for us. That's what God is doing right now. That's what it means for uh, immortal, invisible, transcendent God to come down and meet with humans. Notice that in meditating on friendship with God, how far we've come. Because this psalm began when David was in a tight spot. And we get the feeling that in turning to God for guidance and meditating on his character and his covenant that David has found real comfort. And maybe you get the feeling that the psalm's about to end, but in verse 15, we're, we're back in the mess. We're back in the struggles. And notice where his eyes are now, though they're on the Lord. In other words, having reminded himself of the truth, the truth about the Lord, and all that he has belonging to God, David is now enabled to face the problems at hand, and that's the point. Verse 16, we see another honest cry. And David is very open. He says, I'm lonely, afflicted. It's a good reminder to us that we can enjoy deep communion with God. We can take delight in the Sabbath. We can be comforted in his love, his teaching, and fellowship with the saints. And that doesn't just make the loneliness go away all the time. It doesn't make our afflictions go away. And I hope that's a comfort to you because you can know that God doesn't blame you for being lonely even in long seasons of life. David inspired, God inspired David rather to tell him that he's lonely. And that's amazing that God would put these verses uh, in David's mouth because you would think we have a a great reason not to be lonely because we have the Lord and we have the Spirit. We have the church and these are all great comforting things and yet God has ordained that at times his children will struggle with loneliness and affliction. And troubles of the heart, as we see in verse 17. And know that God invites you to call out to him. God wants you to ask him to take you out of your troubles. That's a good thing to ask for. That's legitimate. God wants you to be explicit in telling him why he should deliver you. David doesn't mince words here explaining his situation. He doesn't say that he's hurting, but really it's not so bad. He doesn't say that, uh, he doesn't try to paint a picture of the glass being half full and not half empty. No, he's, he gives motives to God. He says, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. God wants you to spell out your pain. The point is not to suggest that we all need to be Eeyores. The point is not that we need to be mopers in our prayers. You know, I, I, if we, uh, you know, if you lived back in 1000 BC and you worked as a, a butler or a maid in the temple and you come across David's prayer book, you wouldn't say, man, this guy needs to lighten up. Because the Psalms are so full of exaltation and gratitude and praise, and yet at the same time, there's great vulnerability. And that's the point. God's desire is that his children would be honest with him in prayer. Be reverent. That's the main thing. Be reverent in prayer to God, but also be honest and be vulnerable. 
and tell it to him like it is. Tell him your pain. Tell him your loneliness. Because God has done that for us. He has brought us into a secret council. We have the privilege of revealing ourselves to him in prayer because he knows already. Well, David closes with another plea in verses 20 and 21, and we're kind of back to where we started, the request for deliverance. David says about himself the same thing that he said in verse 3, and that's, I wait for you. Because David is still waiting. He's waiting for deliverance. He's waiting for deliverance from his enemies, and his situation is still the same. Prayer hasn't changed the situation, but it has changed him. And now that he has warmed himself and comforted himself in thinking about the Lord, he's able to wait with a bit more comfort, a bit more hope. So what have we learned in this psalm? I started by asking the question, what's the right way to pray when you're overwhelmed? I think a lot of Christians might take offense at that because we assume that we have the right to pray however we want, right? But have we not seen a model for prayer when we're overwhelmed or anxious or in trouble? And the temptation is to pray only about the trials, to pray only about the pain. Now, David does mention those things, but that's more where he ended than where he started. The way to comfort is not just to ask for comfort. If we take our cues from Psalm 25, we see that the way to comfort is to think about the Lord, to confess our need for his guidance, to confess our sins against him, to ponder his character, to consider our inclusion in his covenant, in his counsel. That's real comfort in thinking about the Lord and centering our minds on him. It is good to ask for deliverance. It is good to ask for help, but it's best to do so when we've remembered that our problems aren't about us. Your pain is not about you. God has ordained our problems so that we would seek him and know him and grow closer to him. And notice the effect of these priorities in David's prayer. Look at verse 22. What does he do? He prays for other people. He prays for Israel. And that's astounding because, I don't know about you, when you're overwhelmed, praying for other people just feels like it's out of your bandwidth because I've got enough problems of my own. But why can David do that? Because he first centered his heart and his mind on the Lord. When we're centered on Christ... We're unable to look outward to the troubles of other, others, and we can pray for them too. And may it be that we would all strive and resolve that when trials come and loneliness and affliction overwhelm us, that we would take our troubles to the Lord, but that we wouldn't stop there, but that we would seek Him, and that we would seek to know Christ, because knowing Him is what helps us endure most. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we give you praise that you teach us to seek, to seek you for help, but, we also, but you also teach us to seek you for your own sake. We pray that you would teach us and that you would make us to know your ways because your ways are good, because you are good. And we thank you that you have included us in your counsel. We pray that we would not take that lightly, but that we would take your words to heart. Take these words to heart. May they dwell in our hearts and our minds that we might be changed and further sanctified in Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen.